even mm-hmm. if you're not a real estate professional, because you know your earned income is taxed at a rate up to 37%, but you can shelter your rental income from tax using depreciation and cost right. segregation studies and all that good stuff. So you could theoretically add tens of thousands of dollars of income to your you know bottom line, if you will, but not pay any tax on it. And I think that's something I wish more people realized about real estate. It's not just about taking losses from real estate and being able to use them against your active income. That's certainly a big benefit of real estate, but it's not the end all and be all necessarily. Your network is your net worth. Come listen to some of the most successful people I know. Share invaluable knowledge, stories, and advice in real estate, business, and beyond. This is Weiss Advice. Whether you want to take your business or personal life to the next level, look no further. Welcome back to another episode of Weiss Advice. I am your host, as always, Yona Weiss. Excited to be back here in a new year with another great lineup of guests. And to start it off, well, it's not going to be the first episode of the year, but nevertheless, Thomas Castelli, CPA. Awesome to have you on the show. How are you doing today? Very good. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here with you today. It's a pleasure. It's always good to have other podcast hosts on the show as a guest because you got to have, well, first of all, you got the great equipment set up. So the sound I know is going to be quality, but you also have the experience of the podcast banter that often happens and, and not thrown off by by random questions. For sure. So a little background, if you guys don't know who Thomas is, he is with no longer the real estate CPA, but Tax Smart Investors Hall CPA, they are the real estate CPA guys. Okay. So check out the website. And if you guys aren't subscribed to a podcast, if you want to learn anything about real estate investing from a tax perspective and find the best tax strategies to use in your real estate business, I highly recommend you check out their podcast, their amazing Facebook group. We'll make sure to put all the links in the show notes. What about without further ado, Tom, how did you get? I'm curious how you got into this because most CPAs take the course of getting their license, working in some big four, you know, firm, and you know, a good portion of them wind up figuring out they hate the corporate lifestyle right. and try to find something more entrepreneurial. So I know I'm kind of giving away the story a little bit, <laughs> but tell us a little about how you guys got started. Yeah, you know, that actually, that kind of is my story to a degree, right? So I was in college and the entire time I grew up, my parents like go to school for accounting, go to school for accounting. So I went to school for accounting. And then when I was in college, I was like, yeah, this won't get me to where I want to go. Like I saw it already, but spent four years in college going to school for accounting, got a job with, it wasn't the big four, but it was the firm right under it, BDO, it was like number six firm, got into general assurance and was like, okay, I'm sitting there living the corporate lifestyle, auditing these very big companies and realized that this just wasn't for me, that big corporate stuffy lifestyle. And also what, when I was in college, you know, having realized that already kind of at that point, I started reading books like The Rich Dad, Poor Dad, The Richest Man in Babylon. And, you know, the rabbit hole from there goes pretty deep into learning about real estate. So in between the time I was actually, the year I graduated that summer, I went to a three-day multifamily syndication weekend where they broke down everything about multifamily syndication. And I kind of fell in love with that business model. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like real estate's really what I want to do. So I was like, you know, let me get, let me go. I had already gotten the internship at BDO. I'm like, all right, let me go through that. And after after going through about a year at the firm, I kept trying to get them to get me into their real estate department because Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, this is what I want to focus on. So might as well be all in on real estate. And there's like a wait list or whatever the case was, there was no spot. So I was like, you know what? I'm done like waiting for someone (laughs) to hand me something. 
And so I left and ended up doing my own thing for a bit. Then ultimately met Brandon, met him on LinkedIn. And at that point had just did a syndication with another group of people. So we had syndicated 82 units in Jacksonville, which is fun. And I was like, this seems like a perfect like match, right? Like I'm coming right off of real estate, doing a deal. And now, you know, why not just take my tax, my accounting background and put it towards, you know, something a little bit more entrepreneurial here at this firm, which we can really grow. So that's kind of my story. I couldn't be confined to the tight constraints of a corporate job. I need to be a little bit more free and have a little bit more input on the growth of something. And that's kind of how I got here. Right. That's awesome. And it's amazing to see. And I remember when Brandon Hall, really from Bigger Pockets, where I first came across him probably like five years ago. And when he was basically first starting, starting out the firm and was starting to grow it into, you know, obviously it's taken off and has grown leaps and bounds from where it was back then. But, you know, tell us a little bit what your kind of day to day, because I know you're focused much more on the business side of it, not the actual accounting side of it, right? You don't want to be in the stuffy accounting world, although you do have a a huge team of accountants working for you guys. I know you're focused a lot more on the content creation, you know, running the Facebook group and the YouTube and the the podcast and such. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I I started off at the firm doing tax advisory. So I started off doing consulting. I ended up building a team of people, put a manager in place there. And now that allowed me to kind of step out of that role and focus more on the marketing side and the sales side. So, you know, to your point, I run our Facebook group. We have the Tax Smart Investors Facebook group. So I run that. I make sure our podcast, the show goes on, guests, you know, all of that stuff. Then I also write our newsletter, also involved in creating courses. That So we have some courses to help people reduce taxes. Mm-hmm. So creating those and then marketing and selling those. Also run our sales team. So then, you know, that's basically overseeing. Our, I'm the sales manager. Right. And then on top of that, I'm like designing the sales process. How can we tweak it? How can we make it more efficient? Where do we need to add people? So that's kind of like probably my role, I would say, in the, for the most part, doing those types of tests. But then I'm posting on TikTok and like then basically it's how can we get leads in the door, right? How can we bring those leads from leads to clients? And then mm-hmm. that's pretty much my role right now. Eventually, it's going to turn into, OK, how can I make sure that we have everybody staffed appropriately? Right. Somebody else handles that now, but that'll be the growth of my role. But that's pretty much what I do. Content creation and, and distribution. It's pretty awesome to, to think, you know, you go to school for accounting, get your CPA license. And, you know, you're creating content and and overseeing a sales team all day, which is really something, obviously, you were more cut out for, you were more passionate about. Curious, I want to get back to the real estate investing side of things, because obviously that's integral to running a real estate accounting company. Because one of the things that I've seen from all the real estate investors, and we share a ton of clients, is that real estate investors want to make sure that they have a CPA who understands real estate and understands all of the tax tools and strategies that are involved in the real estate game so that they can be maximizing that, taking advantage of that. With that said, you know, being a real estate investor, right, is it's just a huge, huge, huge window, right? Between, you know, someone who's just got a fix and flip or maybe they're doing one buy and hold, long-term rental, whatever it is, to, you know, private equity and, you know, big firms, REITs and all the kinds of stuff in everything in between. Where would you say your focus, like ideal sweet spot is in terms of your client base? Our client base? Yes. Yeah. So right now, I would say we definitely work best with people who have an existing portfolio. So like if you're just getting started into your first property, you don't have your first property yet, probably not. Probably not someone we work with best. But 
you know, it depends on their investment strategy, right? If you're a short-term rental investor, you're going to be investing in short-term rentals and trying to use the short-term rental loophole. We could help you if you have as little as one property. Mm-hmm. If you're going on the long-term side, it becomes a little bit more challenging to get people to where they want to be because to be upfront, the tax benefits on a long-term portfolio aren't as great unless you can qualify as a real estate professional. Right. Being a past investor actually has a lot of tax benefits, being able to lower your effective tax rate and all of that, shelter your income with passive losses, even if you're not a real estate professional, but people sometimes don't see it that way. So I guess to summarize it, it, like on the single family side, definitely someone who has like one one property, we could help short-term rentals. And then like as they kind of on the on, on the long-term side, probably like five properties or more. But then at the same time, we do work with everybody like kind of above that too. Like we have the commercial uh, syndicate, real estate investors. Exactly. We have syndicates, you know, on syndicates, multifamily, they do commercial. Then we have clients who own billions of dollars in commercial real estate. And then we have a fund that's doing like hundreds of houses a month. So we see a lot of different things. And then of course you have your occasional fix and flippers, but I would say most of our clients are involved in rental real estate in some way, shape or form. Right. And they might have other businesses, but rental real estate kind of ties it all together. By and Gotcha. Home. And that's a really important point. I think a lot of people who get into real estate also have other businesses or are coming from other businesses or other careers that get into real estate. So it's never really black and white that all I have, like all my income streams are just from real estate, which makes it a little more complicated. Right, right. You know, I would say the majority of people that I've worked with in my career or spoke with, even potential clients, most of them have some type of job or business that's not real estate and then they're looking to pour money into real estate. And to be fair, there are plenty of people who are in real estate full time, but like majority of the people are not full time real estate. Right? Sure. They're just yeah. Yeah. And that's smart. I mean, I think that's one of the things that makes real estate so amazing is that you don't need to be full time real estate. You can leverage your other businesses, take money, take capital from that and grow your real estate portfolio on the side or simultaneously, which is I think the power of real estate right. and wealth building. Right. The way I look at it is you have your primary income generator, right? You have the business or a job that pays you, and then you take that money, you pour it into real estate, which is a more tax effective vehicle to actually earn in, even mm-hmm. if you're not a real estate professional, because you know your earned income is taxed at a rate up to 37%, but you can shelter your rental income from tax using depreciation and cost right. segregation studies and all that good stuff. So you could theoretically add tens of thousands of dollars of income to your you know, bottom line, if you will, but not pay any tax on it. And I think that's something I wish more people realized about real estate. It's not just about taking losses from real estate and being able to use them against your active income. That's certainly a big benefit of real estate, but it's not the end all and be all necessarily. That's an excellent point. You're absolutely right. People are really focused on that. And I think have that tunnel vision of the only way I can really make real estate work in cost segregation work is to use it to offset my active income. And sure, there are the you know the strategies with the short-term rentals, but even with long-term rentals, even with commercial real estate, passive investments, all that being said, that you can use that to you know, lower your effective tax rate, lower your taxable income in that regard. Absolutely. So are you still investing yourself personally in real estate since that 18 unit in Jacksonville years ago? Yes. Yeah, so kind of that was like a fork in the road opportunity for me. It was like, do I go full-time in real estate, like syndication, or do I doubled down on the accounting firm. And at the time, doubling down on the accounting firm seemed to make the most sense. Was it the right choice, the best choice? We'll never know, but <laughs> it's what happened. So it was the right I, choice because it's what you did. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, so it, it was a good choice. And so what, kind of what I what I'd done from there is say, you know what, I'm going to take a back seat and do limited partnership investing simply because 
I do believe in focus and to get to do a syndication, but to run a syndication business, even at part time takes a significant amount of time and energy to pull Mm -hmm. all the resources together, the capital, the brokers, you know, everybody, the property managers to not only get a deal across the finish line, but then usually in the beginning, there's some at least monitoring you have to do at the very least if not more. So I was like, you know, I can't really focus on doing that right now. And, you know, building a single family portfolio really wasn't my particular thing. So I'm like, I'm just going to invest as a limited partner with sponsors who really know what they're doing. And at some point later on down the line, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years from now, when I have the capital base, hopefully the time I'll go and and look at doing bigger multifamily properties on a more active basis. That's awesome. Now, do you actually invest, I'm curious, with any of your clients? Because obviously you see who's really doing a good job, who's not necessarily doing the best job, gives you a little more uh, bird's eye view. Right. I have not particularly done it yet. There's one client in particular, I'm not going to go into any major details, but they have a really interesting model that I might see if, if there's any way I can invest in them. I don't work with them personally, so I might be able to do it. But you always have to worry about the conflict of interest right. too. It's like, you know, be, them being a client. So I haven't done it yet, but I, I am considering it with at least one of our clients and we'll have to see if it's possible to do so. Very cool. Now, I think it's a great way to kind of, obviously, you're absolutely right about the conflict of interest there. But when you're able to see so many, and I'm sure you get like hundreds or dozens at least of clients like who are syndicators across your desk. I mean, because you automatically get on their email list and you see all the deals that are coming through. That's how email works nowadays. If you email someone about anything, you're automatically on their list. So, I mean, I personally get, you know, dozens of these, you know, pitch decks every single day. It's just like unsubscribe. Yeah. Yeah, You know, I got to tell you, it's really challenging sometimes because you see some, at least on my, at least for someone like me and you, it's been in my experience where it's like, I see so many of these things. It's so hard to like tell them apart. Like, it's just like, it's just, you know, they're all the same kind of format. They all have this similar returns. It's like, really, you have to really pick up the phone and probably dive deep with each sponsor to see, you know, what their experience is, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are before making an investment decision, just because there's so many syndicators out there. And yeah, just got to make sure you do your due diligence. I guess, For sure. Trying to say. For sure. I want to talk to you a little bit about the Facebook group. You know, I've been a member from basically day one. I think I was like, I remember like the first hundred members, right? (laughs) And it's just been incredible to watch it grow. And it's really become, I know you monitor it and you're kind of running it and have moderators, but it's really almost become like an organism on its own, right? Right. Right. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting that, you know, in the beginning, it was a lot of Brandon and myself would have to push a lot of energy into it to keep it like to fan the flame. But as more and more people start hearing about it from the podcast or just from Facebook or from wherever they hear about it, people start their own discussions and then people start answering their own discussion, answering. And because they started to pick up on everything that we kind of put out there and how everything works. You know, most of the time, the members do give pretty good yeah. tax advice if you wanted to call it that. <laughs> not always. You always got to take that stuff with a grain of salt when you're not getting it from an expert. But right. yeah, it really has taken on kind of a life of its own at this point. It's pretty amazing. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of accountants in that group as well that aren't affiliated with you per se, which is part of the group right. participating. So you are going to get various. And the funny thing about tax advice is that it may be different. You know, the facts and circumstances are different for everyone. So you may get different advice from different people. But one thing that I always find amusing, and you see this with all types of forums, is that someone can learn something and then just kind of regurgitate the answers. Right. 
over and over again when they may be missing some nuances that weren't mentioned originally. Right, right. Because you know what it is, and this is probably helpful for everybody to know. The tax code is a lot more nuanced than people think, you know, may think. And I don't think it should be that way. I would love for them to simplify it, and I would vote for them to simplify it <laughs> at any time you know, that, that it presents itself, even if it's not in my best interest. But like it's really complicated. There's a lot of like a lot of little things you have to watch out for people's individual facts and circumstances. And not everything's so black and white. There's a lot of ca- tax court cases. There are things open for interpretation. So, you know, the best thing I could say is that if you're out there, you're listening to stuff, you're finding out information online, you know, use that to have a conversation with your own tax professional, right, on how that could fit into your overall tax plan. Because listening to a podcast, you know, like this, or even our podcast, or going on a Facebook group or whatever, you know, you hear these things, and you may not get the whole story, right? So like, I always say, use these kinds of conversations to spark an idea in your head, Go have an idea. Go have a conversation with your advisor who's intimately familiar with your situation and get the best advice for you. Sure. 100%. It's really difficult to kind of, you know, just kind of fish through everything. There's so much information out there. And wherever you look, you're going to find conflicting answers. Right. But it's even funny when you find conflicting answers from accountants. And so that's even more difficult, you know, for the average Joe, a real estate investor, trying to figure out what's best for them. Obviously, the best thing for them is to have one advisor or, you know, a tax who's doing their taxes and really understands their specific situation. But at the same time, you know, everyone wants the answers, right? (laughs) They're just seeking whatever they can get. Yeah, no, I hear you 100%. I would agree with that. Like, it's probably best to have your advisor work with them and stick with them and, you know, make sure you do your diligence on the front end, make sure they are experienced in real estate, et cetera, et cetera. But because there are so many interpretations and because the tax code is so vast and there's always tax court cases, not every CPA, not every tax advisor is attuned to every little detail, especially if they don't work in real estate or work with real estate clients full time. So I guess it's what I'm just trying to say is, I 100% agree with you. Find a really quality tax advisor to a CPA, whatever you could you could work with, and then work with them and just stay focused on what they're saying and kind of try to ignore the noise, if you will. Yeah, that's interesting. I know you guys focus a lot more on like the proactive approach, right? Because right. so much education is in there. You're creating courses. You have existing courses that people can learn and be more proactive with how to strategize, how to set things up, how to you know make the right decisions before you're just going to go and file. But I mean, everyone's worst nightmare is to get audited, right? And right. and that's something that no one really talks about that much uh, about actually going through the process. Is that something that you your firm, I mean, obviously you have an accounting firm, it's going to happen. You're going to have clients that have to go through that. Is that something you guys have experienced at all? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, a few things on that. So like, we always advise our clients to do everything, you know, the right way from the beginning. So that's why we put out all the courses, everything you said, so that if an audit ever does come, like they're prepared to knock down the audit, right? Just like everything's ready to go. The case is all but one, if you will. But we have certainly not many of our clients have actually ever gotten audited, but we had, you know, a handful of clients come to us who were in the middle of an audit Mm. seeking assistance. Right. What ended up happening was, is either one or two things happen. They got no advice, no planning, no nothing in the front before taking a tax position like the real estate professional status, for example. Right. And when you look at their facts and circumstances, you're just like, there's no way you can win. There's absolutely nothing we can do for you. Like literally, like you just didn't like you didn't follow the rules and you're just SOL. Then there's some people who do have some of the right things, but they came too late in the audit process. Mm-hmm. And what happened was they gave too much information or they gave the wrong information to the authorities. And now 
you really put yourself in a bad position. So proactivity, it's so important. It's so important to make sure you're getting the right advice, implementing the tax strategies the right way the first time from the beginning so that if you do ever get audited and you should expect to be audited, right, that you can easily defend it. And the same time happens when you get like, what happens is people get notices or IRS notices and they let them sit there for months or weeks and weeks. And then time goes by, deadline goes by. Like you have to be prompt on that stuff too. You receive a notice. The first thing you should be doing is calling your CPA, letting them know about the notice. Don't respond to the IRS or the States. Don't do anything yet. Get with your CPA as soon as possible so that they can help you properly respond to the notice, right? And, you know, we've also had people send us notices, like it'd be like the notice is dated October 30th, right? And then they, they send it to us like December 20th, right before the notice is due, right? Mm -hmm. It's like proactive, be proactive about your tax situation. 100%. Now, it's such a good point over there. I think that's really what sums it up. Uh, people getting in trouble and just not being proactive enough. And it's something I think a lot of people have this, I don't know what it is. It's like this disposition to taxes that are just scary to a lot of people. And I talk to people all the time who are, it's funny, I, even when I give like presentations, people think like when you hear the word taxes, you're just like, like people have like a brain fog. I mean, right. I don't know. I don't understand. I don't want to deal with this. I right. Yeah. But really there's so much that can be understood if you just, you know, take the time to educate yourself. Right, right. Tax is one of your biggest expenses and it's absolutely something people should learn, but I totally understand at the same time. It is very nuanced. It is very complicated and it sounds weird. It's also scary because, you know, everybody thinks that if they mess up, they're going to go to jail, right? The IRS right. is automatically going to freeze their accounts and go to jail. I mean, there's a lot of steps in between you making a mistake and that actually happening, you're actually even getting your accounts frozen or going to jail in many cases, unless like you're just doing something so egregious. <laughs> but like, so it's not as scary as people think. You know, to take a deep breath, think about it rationally. It's not scary. Get the right advice, implement the right strategies, make sure you have your substantiation in place and guard against the downside by being proactive. And there's nothing to be scared about at the end of the day. For sure. I want to touch on, we've talked about on the podcast a few times about some people call the short-term rental loophole. Now, I'll be honest with you, I've seen you guys actually, you know, kind of frame it that way. I have a little problem with something being called a loophole that's not really a loophole. I mean, it's straight up in the tax code, right? You just have to know where to find it. Right, right. So, you know, I have some opinions on this. I'm, so I'm calling um, you out. I'm calling you out. <laughs> so so it, it is absolutely in the tax code. It's right in the regulations in IRS publication 925. And it's also discussed in several tax court cases. So it's out there for everybody to see. And it's been in place, I think, since the 90s. But the reason why we call it a loophole is this. Well, first and foremost, it, it, people, it gets people's attention more, yeah, more sure. than an exception, right? And people listen, perk up, and then they actually get what it's meant for. But when this was written, this was really section 469 of the tax code, the passive activity rules, was put into place to prevent your average investor from just buying a rental property and using a cost segregation study and generating these losses and just taking right. it against active income. That was the purpose of it. They implemented this exception, the seven days or less exception, or 30 days or less exception if you're going to have substantial services. It was really meant for hotels, inns, motels, and other establishments. And there's no way that Congress in the 80s or 90s, I forgot, this might have been in the 80s too, but for them to foresee the the advent of you know Airbnb and VRBO and that 30, 40 years from now, people would be booking you know, hotels on a cell phone, right? right. Uh, they have cell phones. <laughs> so like that wasn't their intention, right? For your average person to be able to do this right. or for you know your everyday investors. So because it wasn't their intention, that's why it could be considered a loophole because you're getting you're circumventing kind of section 469, something that is legitimate 
but wasn't really meant to be intended to be used. Your average retail investor to be able to go buy a single family house and rent it out for seven days or less probably wasn't practical back uh, right. back at that time. Very interesting. Scale. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate your uh, explanation of that, but which leads me really to the next question. I mean, if it wasn't necessarily their intention, I mean, do you foresee this coming up sometime in the given future now that this has become so prevalent? I mean, Airbnbs are like, you know, it's everyone knows what that, you know, everyone knows what it is and so many people are taking advantage of it. I mean, this is pure speculation, right? right? So I could see it being then potentially changing something on it. But what I imagine is going to happen is bonus depreciation will begin to sunset at some point. And the ability to generate these large, big losses to take against your W-2 or your um, your active business income, just they wouldn't be there. And it would be like, kind of automatically decentivize it to an extent if you're only doing it from the tax perspective. So I could certainly see that happening where it just sunsets out and they just kind of let it go. Right. But you never know. You never know. Right now we've had heard nothing, right? So all the bills, the Biden bills, everything that was supposed to come and pass, no mention about this at all. So that's my opinion. I think eventually it'll just take care of itself. But hey, look, the short-term rentals, investing in those can be very lucrative from an investment standpoint. So I think right. that still holds true even without the tax benefits. And then cost segregation studies, people don't realize this, is still very powerful even yeah. without bonus depreciation. I mean, the ability to accelerate property from say 27 and a half or 39 year property down to a five year depreciation schedule to, to a 15 year depreciation schedule. And it's even accelerated beyond that. I'm not going to go into all the details, but I mean, it's still very powerful even without bonus depreciation. But my point is, is that I think bonus depreciation as it sunsets, that might take care of itself. That's my yeah. opinion. No, it makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And I appreciate your perspective on that because what I've seen just over the past few years is the huge amount of people just buying short-term rentals and then using the cost segregation because of this short-term rental, we'll call it loophole now, based on your explanation, is just phenomenal. I mean, it's unbelievable how many people are doing this. Yeah, you know, it is. It is unbelievable to see how many people are doing it. But another thing I, I kind of want to throw in there too, not only is the regulation, not only is, what do you call it, sunsetting, bonus appreciation sunsetting, right. but also a lot of these markets are starting to regulate. I think I read recently, I forgot exactly what state it was, was going to lose, oh, New York City was going to lose 10,000 Airbnb right. licenses or whatever. So a, a lot of these more markets that aren't vacation markets that aren't don't rely on tourism. Over time, I think they're going to start to regulate short-term rentals even more. So you're going to probably see less and less people start doing short-term rentals. And actually, just while I'm on that, quick tip for anybody who's listening, some of our clients actually, what they do is they invest in short-term rentals in markets where they can also rent it out long-term and it would still make sense for them because they realize, okay, this might not be a vacation market. It's a regular market. And if the township or whatever ends up putting some type of restrictions on Airbnb, they can always flip it into a long-term rental. Right and not be underwater. So just something to watch out for because that regulate regulatory piece is real. It's coming and I've seen it happen to people and it's happening in New York right now. So sure. And you're absolutely right. It happens happens all too often. And you totally sound investment advice there to have multiple exit strategies or multiple investment strategies buying a property. We talked uh, with Ziona McIntyre on the podcast a couple of months ago about midterm rentals. Also, you can convert it to you know 30 days or three month leases and things like that. There's a huge market for that in a lot of places sure. as well. So just to know what your options are, I think having having those kind of options available makes it makes the investment overall much more sound. So I appreciate that advice there. Tom, we're going to transition to what we call the final four these are four questions I like to ask all my guests. First question for you is, what is the worst job that you ever had? 
it's hard to say. I can't say I had any job I absolutely hated, which is surprising, at least offhand. The worst job I ever had probably had to be recruiting, actually. Believe it or not, I was a recruiter for a short period of time. And it's a pure sales job, pure business development. And she's a lot of banging the phones. And the interesting part of the recruiting firm I worked for was my biggest competition was not the people outside of the firm, other recruit other recruiters, but the firm was so developed to the point mm. where like all the good candidates that I had to recruit were already taken or flagged by other people within the firm. So it's like imagine territories in a sense. And it's right. like everybody had all the good territories already. And I'm the new guy left with the scraps. And I just found that to be very challenging. And then there's just a bunch of stuff in that industry I didn't really that really didn't sit well with my values. So I'd say, while I didn't hate the job necessarily, probably the worst job that I've had. Yeah. I mean, there there's probably a reason why you, you know the synonym for a recruiter is a headhunter. Right. right. There's it, it's I mean, not necessarily be, the most glamorous job. Yeah. I mean, you you have to convince people who may not always want to be convinced to leave a position that they're like the best people to hire, this is why I learned recruiting, are people who are happy in their current job. Right? right. And trying to bring those people out and get those people to move ethically is sometimes really challenging to do. Yeah. For sure. Okay. So second question is going to be, what's a book you've read that's given you a paradigm shift? Oh yeah. Atomic Habits. So I read this book, March, 2021 had been recommended to me and it's about identity was the biggest component in it. it was like, okay, you are what you repeatedly do. So you could sit there and you could have affirmations about, oh, I'm this or I'm that, but it's really the actions you put behind it. Right. So what that paradigm shift really did for me, is sit down like, well, who am I or who do I want to be? Right. I wrote all that stuff down. And I said, okay, well, what actions can I start putting behind this stuff to make this stuff real if there wasn't already action behind it? So, you know, I wrote all that stuff down. I started kickboxing. I did a fitness photo. I did fitness stuff that I didn't normally do. And a whole bunch of other little things that really came out from this book of realizing that your identity is what you repeatedly do. So think of who you want to be and then go put the actions, ask yourself, what do those people do? Start doing those actions. And over time, you will become that person because you'll start building the habits that that person has. So right. really eye-opening book. I'd highly recommend it. Atomic Habits by James Clear, I believe was the book. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. We'll make sure to put that in the show notes. Awesome book. Definitely had it mentioned a couple of times in the podcast, but not in a long time. So appreciate that. It's actually one of the first business books that I read years ago. So definitely highly recommend it. Probably due time for a reread, <laughs> in my opinion. So uh, third question is, what's a skill or talent that you would like to learn? Yeah, that's a good one. I, I certainly do want, I'll be cliche here. I do want to master like real estate syndication at some point, like bring a property from A to Z, but really something that's I guess not probably so commonly. I want to learn another language. That would be awesome to learn like Spanish or Italian and be able to be fluent in another language. That would be awesome. Awesome. That's great. Now, that's funny that that's an answer a lot of people give is learn another language. So there you go. We'll check back in some time to see if you accomplish that. And fourth and final question is what does success mean to you? Yes. So that is a good question. Success means to me that you're giving value to the community and to your family, to who you're around, being a person of value really. But that's kind of like the immaterial component of it, I guess. But also like the material component of it is being able to leave something for the next generation. For mm -hmm. me, generational wealth is a really big component, which is kind of why I kind of got found my way to real estate in the first place was like that ability. So success would be that I'm able to raise a family with independent children who can think and act on their own, and then also be able to pass down wealth, hopefully in the form of real estate that can provide for the, you know, the needs of the future generations, if that makes sense. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful answer. 
And it totally makes sense. Absolutely. That's what it's all about. And you got the right head start, the right head on your shoulders for it. So good luck to you with that. Wishing you much tremendous continued success. And in that regard, in all regards, where can our listeners find you or reach out to you if they want to? Yep. So probably the best way to get in touch with me would probably be through that Tax Smart Investors Facebook group. Tax Smart Inve- It's at facebook.com slash group slash Tax Smart Investors. But you can also find me at therealestatecpa.com. So just www.realestatecpa.com. Probably the best places. Awesome. Awesome. So we'll make sure to put that in the show notes. And it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me. And we'll, you know, hopefully catch up again soon. Likewise, it's always fun. And to our listeners, thank you guys for listening all the way to the end. Once again, remember the best advice comes only when you ask. Real quick, I have one question for you. Did you like this episode? If you did, I wanna ask you a huge favor. See, the biggest thing that helps this podcast grow and that will spread this message to the whole world is that if you leave a review, a rating, and subscribe to the podcast. What that does is it basically tells the platforms that this podcast out on is that you like my stuff and I'm doing something right. So take a few seconds out of your day, hit that subscribe button, leave a rating review. I would be extremely grateful. Also, I want to hear from you guys. So I want to hear some feedback. If you have any questions for future episodes, please find me on LinkedIn, send me a DM, a connection request, Yona Weiss, and I'd love to hear from you.